Welcome to Lesson Impossible, an exploration of educational innovation. I'm your host, Aviva Levin. As always, I'm chatting with educators of all types who are on the forefront of pedagogy or making effective changes to old practices. Your lesson, should you choose to accept it, is to use inquiry in your classroom so that students can be engaged, make meaning from their learning, and integrate important skills. The special agent assigned to help you with this task is Jillian Gordon, a grade 4-5 teacher and vice principal in North Vancouver, British Columbia. Full disclosure, today's guest, Jillian Gordon, is my best friend. Fifteen years after meeting while moving into our university dorm, I am still constantly awed by her energy and intelligence. Despite her busy schedule, Jill came across the border to visit me over the November long weekend. In the Lesson Impossible headquarters, also known as my home office, we talked inquiry, what it is, why it's important, and how all teachers can use it. Joining in our conversation was my puppy, Shelby, whose gentle dog snores can be occasionally heard in the background. Jill currently does an amazing balancing act of teaching three days a week while also being a vice principal. We began by talking about the vice principal role in an elementary school. Well, I think it's unique to be in that role of a teaching vice principal, and it is not every district is able to fund vice the vice principal role and I'm lucky enough to work in a district that does uh, and really values that sort of teamwork and partnership approach and that type of thing so being a teaching vice principal really gives me I think a closer relationship to teachers because everything that I'm asking them to do I'm doing as well with my own kids like what is the role of a vice principal I think the vice principal fills a role that's needed at a school and it can look different at different school sites I think it also depends on your skill set. Like I am a big teacher geek and love curriculum and assessment. And so that's a big skill set I have. So when I work with staffs, that's what I can bring. But it's a really varied job. And part of it is sort of a portfolio of work to manage the school, which you sort of talk to your principal about and sort of teamwork approach and stuff like that. And part of it is a lot of urgent situations that come up, which is different than an emergency. But throughout a school day, and I've used this phrase with the, you know, in conversation with you before, that dynamic human systems, like you don't know what's going to walk through your doors. Or who's going to poop in their classroom. Yeah. Yeah. There's a reason there's gloves on my desk. <laughs> Anything could happen. <laughs> really good how would you define your personal pedagogical perspective I think my perspective is from a social justice approach ultimately but my my perspective around that sort of philosophy of teaching is involves sort of inquiry-based teaching and learning and then also the social emotional learning piece and I think both of those serve a social justice perspective uh, really well so how would you define an inquiry-based teaching approach that's a good question because it's such an education buzzword and it can also be quite vague. I think for me, ultimately, what it means is learners making meaning for themselves, that their meaning has as contextual and relevant to them and they're creating that for themselves. And you're, I see the teacher role as more the guide on the side and I'm, my job is to create opportunities for learners to develop those understandings and skills. And it's really all about the way the the kids opportunity to do their own investigations and to build an understanding 
um, that's not just told to them by somebody else, but actually created by them through trying things out and applying it to different contexts and working with others. So what would be an example of an inquiry-based lesson or unit? Uh, Well, there's different types of inquiry. Uh, Structured, guided, open, free. Structured inquiry, uh, all of them sort of are rising degrees of, of student agency. So something could be quite simple, like a guided inquiry where, I don't know, this is a common grade five activity when you study the human body. Uh, you build a model of the system. Okay, so the kids use a pop bottle and they cut it out and they make a lung and they label the parts. If you're looking at sort of that beginning level of entry kind of level of inquiry, okay, well, the kids make the pop bottle, but you don't tell them what the parts are. They use their knowledge that they've gained over the last few activities to identify, okay, the balloon is an analogy for the diaphragm and so on. And it can go all the way up to the kids asking the essential questions that drive the inquiry or bringing something into class that sort of sparks the, com- the, the conversation and your direction shifts. Um, and I think all of those have a role. It's kind of the most exciting when the kids come in and they have this great idea and suddenly you're shifting. And that's that's often when kids are the most engaged. But even that sort of the structured and guided level of inquiry, if kids have a chance to tell you what they know and to try things out in question and like figure it out for themselves, maybe with others, maybe with a resource sheet or whatever it is. So I've talked to teachers that have said, there's no way that I could trust or my kids would be capable of doing inquiry before grade 10, before the 10th grade. Like, how can you do inquiry in elementary and have it be successful? Is it just these teachers are not giving kids the credit they deserve? A little bit, I think it's that. Like, uh, I'm constantly amazed at what kids can do. Uh, and and from the VP role, like, from what all my staff can do. And I think we have to be open-minded to see that. Uh, but there's a difference between inquiry and research skills. So it's true that research skills are a process. To, it's a process to develop those. And we certainly start in elementary. And, and by grade 10, kids, the, you know, the goal is to be self-sufficient researchers. That is different than inquiry. Inquiry is an opportunity to build understanding. For example, when I was teaching grade 5, I had a class government unit. That's inquiry. The kids are running for office. They're learning how to create campaign materials. They're deciding what their priorities are. Uh, they even ra- I let them raise taxes. It was a dollar per <laughs> desk one year, you know. And they're planning their you know their jurisdiction quote unquote was their day they planned. That's inquiry. They were ten. Those kids deeply understood the role of government and their own personal rights in that. What is a unit or lesson that you were the most proud of? My government units? I think it's because I really like this inquiry question. It goes something like, what is the relationship between government authority and personal freedom? Whoa! I know, because that jazzes me. (laughs) And then the kids are really into it because they're just at that age where they're finding their independence and they're navigating that. So it's, it's really great cross-curricular right because you can build in some wield and um weave in like puberty and health kind of things and like you've got the math for taxes and the financial literacy piece and so I really like that unit another unit I really like is my simple machines unit which has probably been my bumpiest unit I decided kids so with my teaching partner at the time the other grade five teacher we decided 
in Simple Machines, we were going to try an open inquiry where the kids got to, like at stations, play with Simple Machines. Like, here's some wedges and a door that won't stay open. What are you going to do? Or like, here's uh, nails and screws. And we did try axes once. That did not go well. I also, the first year, had kids hammering in the hallway, which my colleagues did not appreciate. Uh, And then I figured out, oh, you need parent volunteers to stand out on the field (laughs) with this station so they can hammer. But I'm proud of that because I kept at it. And now I think it's a really great unit where it's a mix of that open inquiry, like a maker station with hammers and screws and small pieces of wood and different things like that. But also some more structured inquiry, which I think is a better balance. Um, So kids get to explore, but also get some direction in that. So I'm happy with that flow of that unit, but I've certainly worked on it a lot and taken a lot of colleague feedback around hammers. (laughs) (laughs) My understanding was this is something for arts, but there's a place for inquiry in every... Well, science is inquiry. And I think if you talk to a geographer, they would argue that is inquiry. Yeah. There's absolutely a place for it. And it brings it brings the kids to life with the content too, right? Like with what you're trying to teach them. And inquiry is sort of like, I, you know, talking about kids making meaning. They, well, they, de- they develop skills along the way to help them make that meaning. So it's really about that skill development too. And science, you know, like, okay, the kids have to learn about say, scientific method and fair tests. So I have them do this thing where we build paper airplanes and it's, and you have to be okay with a certain level of chaos. I all make them throw in the same direction. That's my safety thing. <laughs> okay. Throw your airplanes afterwards. Okay. Who won? Well, the kids don't know because there wasn't a starting line and they kind of argue a little bit. You don't, you're not like fighting, but they're kind of disagreeing with each other. And then, oh, what would, what would make it more fair? And the kids slowly work towards, okay, well, we all need the same paper. We all need the same starting line oh, actually we need the same person to throw it because we're all different heights and sizes. And like, oh, okay, kids, you've just described a fair test in science. Like that's inquiry. That's so awesome. It's really fun. You do have to be careful because then they're obsessed with making paper airplanes. (laughs) So you have to let them have their time and then hide your blank paper for a while. (laughs) It's it's good though. I'm, I'm a teacher and I want to do inquiry based on, when do I want to do the... Inquiry based on confederation, maybe confederation. you teach that in high school. Yeah. yeah, inquiry based on the Confederation of Canada, which, in my own personal opinion, I have gone from taking teaching a month long unit to now my Confederation of Canada unit is like a week, and then we talk about all the other ways that other different countries in the world have started, mm. which I understand that some listeners believe to be a sacrilege. But I want to jazz up my confederation unit because nobody, including myself, enjoyed being in that classroom while it was happening. You sit me down. You're my vice principal. What do we do together? I think ultimately we the first thing we do, which I think is like the start of all lesson planning, is what in 10 years from now, what do you want the kids to know? Let's write that down. Let's craft it. I like that sage and scribe. Like you talk, I'll take notes. Just talk at me. Tell me what you're thinking. I'll take your notes. Just be free of that note taking. That's also great for kids in class. Anyway, that's what I would start with. What do you want the kids to know in 10 years from now? Do you need them to memorize all those dates? And for some people, like, you know, I, I've been surprised and people have been like, that's what I need the kids to know. And then it, you just start that long walk of helping them gently understand how the skills are changing and what kids need is changing. But most people aren't going to say, and this has been my experience, they're not going to say, I need them to know so-and-so arrived on X date. 
So I want my my students to understand that countries and nationalities form in a variety of different ways and how we conceive of what a country is has changed over time. Okay, I think the next step is probably to think about some essential questions that are going to drive your unit. So I don't know, typically you might choose three, maybe just one to start. What is that essential question that's going to drive your unit? What do you want the kids to ponder? What are they going to be able to answer differently on day one versus the last day of the unit and sort of that depth that is a great way to sort of assess your learning in your unit and I would revisit that every day or every other day your essential question so my question is going to be what does it what does can't Hmm. I know. So essential questions. This is where you need to find a, a critical friend. You need someone to bounce ideas. They ha- essential questions are timeless. They're universal. They're not value laden, like all of those things. So if I said, what is Canada? That's not a good essential question. Um, it's the, it, it's not a horribly bad one. There's not one right answer to that. I would say it could be maybe one of your questions, but I wonder if you want to sort of use some driving words in there to help them understand your what you just said about your essential understandings. So what I heard in there is sort of that it's nation building is contextualized. It's changing over time. So I think one of your concepts is going to be change, right? Mm. And then when you're thinking about how they form, I wonder if the other one is maybe a relationship or connection. And so maybe that's what's going to drive your essential question. So what is the connection between or how is blank related to blank? So sort of thinking about questions that can be answered in a really holistic way. And you could make a pot of tea and then five more and play with this for several days. And I think this is the stage of building the unit that I find really exciting because I like that word smithing and I like somebody saying, well, what about I think this is better and like kind of challenging me. But I think also this is the part that takes some time and deep thought. And you might, my, I've never really kept the exact same essential question aside from that government unit I mentioned because I love that question because they're always changing. I'm always like, oh, this is what I really wanted to ask or the kids didn't quite understand blank. I'm going to change it this way. But I think that's the next step is thinking about what do you want the kids to think about? What's going to guide their thinking? So you come up with that question which we could do, but I don't think would be very fun for your listeners on air. But something like that, batting that around, write it down, cross it out, try it again. Say it to somebody. That's a good, I learned this tip at the IB school. I forget who taught me this, but a very senior teacher who was really, really picked up inquiry late in her career and was really into it. She said, read it to your husband. I don't, I don't have one of those, but <laughs> read it to somebody who's not a teacher. Does it make sense? Can they answer it from their perspective? Then you know you're on to something because the kids aren't teachers. They're coming at it from their perspective. And everybody should be able to answer that question in their own way. After that, I think for me, I typically, I, you know, I think the guidance would be design your summative assessment. I typically design my provocation next, like that launch to my unit, because I like that to wrap into my summative in some way. I like that kind of like starting and ending. It gives me a good way to see where the kids have grown. But I think you could start, you know, I think backwards design would say start with your summative next. Yeah. And so... How are you going to know what the kids know? uh, So the provocation would be something... For me, a provocation... 
is sort of setting, building that tension for the kids. You create a situation sort of in that ZPT, that zone of proximal development, where they're sort of, they can't quite do it, but you've got them engaged. You sort of want to build that engagement right off the bat. And then I think revisiting it and that what really is great there is then then your next question is your essential question. Like if your essential question has to do with sort of like systems of government or like human rights or whatever you're looking at, like, okay, then you ask that following. The reason I mention that is I'm thinking of this one provocation I worked on with some really new teachers who are new to provocation. It turned out really cool. The second iteration was better as with like everything in teaching, it gets better. The kid, we had to teach around systems of government. It's a grade six uh, big idea in, in BC or b- part of the curriculum. And so we were using these Unifix cubes we borrowed from our primary colleagues. And each room we set up, we invited, I was a VP at the time, but we asked our principal to like do one of the rooms, represented a different type of government. So there was sort of a government where you all had to agree on every decision. And we're sort of thinking, okay, that's communism. Or no, I forget. Okay, I'm going to forget what all of them were. We had one where one kid was in charge of handing out all the blocks. They had tasks. Like, you need to build a tower with seven pink blocks, eight blue blocks. But we had just given them random handfuls. So they had to trade for these blocks. And there was different rules in each room. And the kids, it was really fun for the kids. They were super engaged. Some of them could build their towers. Some couldn't. Some rooms worked. They rotated through a couple of the rooms. So they saw, like, maybe three systems. One room, there was, like, no teacher. We were just standing outside but they thought there was no teacher and that was like quote-unquote anarchy and it was like really fun until a kid threw blocks then the teacher had to like go in like you know that kind yeah. of thing but that to me is a provocation it gets at what you're learning they don't know you're not telling them what they're learning yet you're going to work to them understanding that so maybe the next day you show a youtube video about democracy and you like talk about rights And you say, oh, I wonder if there's any connections between what you did yesterday and today. And the next day, maybe you teach about a communist system and they read like an excerpt from something. And you're like, oh, I wonder if there's any connection. And you slowly get them to understand what they did. Um, And then when they do it again, they can be like, oh, I'm in the democracy room. Or I'm in, you know, I don't like this. I have rights. I'm going to make a poster. This happened the second time I ran it. I had a very unique student in my room. He liked to protest a lot. He made protest signs because he was unhappy in one of the rooms that he didn't like how the decisions were being made. That's like amazing. (laughs) Like that's real life. So to me, that's a provocation. I just, I was working with my teacher librarian at my new school um, because she has collab time to co-plan a unit. And we were thinking, okay, how can we start a unit on genre? Because genre is really important to learn about, but there are right and wrong answers to some genre questions, right? Like what is science fiction? Of course, of course you can build in Korean, but we're like, Hey, what should we get them to do? We're like, Oh, we're going to get them to sort, take a scholastic order, have them cut up and use context clues from the cover, sort similar books. That's what genre is, is similar books. Then, okay. After that, come over to these tables and sort these picture books. That's that's sort of a provocation. You're not telling them what to do, like what the ultimate thinking is. You're getting them, giving them a task that helps them build that thinking. And so after they're provoked, that's when you come in with that concrete information so that they can then make connections. Sure. Sometimes you're directly teaching that. There's still a role for direct teaching and inquiry, but sometimes you're just creating opportunities for them to, to learn that. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly there's direct teaching. Absolutely. I stand in front of my board and I write on my whiteboards sometimes too. Like that doesn't go away. With doing inquiry, I think part of 
the hesitant sometimes is like a worksheet you can give to the kids and then go back to your desk and prep for the afternoon. But inquiry seems like a much more hands-on thing. Okay, ultimately, if it's if you think you're doing inquiry and it's more work for you, you're doing it wrong. The kids should be the ones working hardest in the room. Also, we're not paid to prep during the day. That's one of the hard parts of being in the classroom enrolling teacher role. If those kids are in the room, they deserve your attention. They're there for such a short amount of time. And I'm not saying that's easy. I've checked my email during personal reading time, but that's not prep time. That's time to be with those learners, to know who they are, to have a chat, to see why somebody came in late that day and like check if they're okay, to see how their learning's going. So when it comes to assessing inquiry, I think a lot of teachers feel that if there's not an answer key that they can refer to, there's no way that they can assess something. Mm. So how do you go about assessing a kid's journey of thinking? This is a tricky question because you want to be, I want to be sensitive of where people are because I think that hesitancy to move around and when people are really staunch and like, I need it out of 20 marks. I think that's a bit of fear that they're not able to think in the way we're asking kids to think. You have to be able to think conceptually to teach conceptually. And that should be the job of a, the teacher training program. I'm not sure it always does that. I think another, you know, so the key to assessing inquiry is transfer and application. So you're, can the kids take what they're doing and apply it to a real world context or apply it in the case of transfer to a novel context? That's learning. Like think about adults and things that they can transfer things to. Like I know if my, if my car is, I'm locked out of my car, I'm going to call BCAA. This is a very simple example, but I'm going to call and I'm going to get my car unlocked. So if I get locked out of my house, I'm not going to panic. I'm going to transfer that and call a locksmith to help me get into my house. So of course that's not a deep thinking example. But adults do that transfer all the time. That's really what's needed. And if you look at sort of the predictions for 21st century skills and what's going to be needed, you know, maybe the World Economic Forum or something like that, that ability to transfer understanding often shows up as a really key skill. That's a real life skill. So that's what we're assessing. Can they do that? Can they apply it? Can they provide their own rationale? And part of this moves away from a paper and pencil assessment. Can they explain how they got that answer in math? They don't need to do that in writing. Walk around your classroom, ask them. I take, a, I use a little sticky notepad. I don't like to carry a big clipboard because it kind of freaks the kids out. Like, why does she have a clipboard? So I carry little sticky notes. Oh, Aviva got the answer this way. Aviva got the answer this way. I gave a couple of prompts. Aviva was super psyched. Like whatever notes you're taking, those are legitimate observations for assessment. You know, teachers are professionals, but you need to be actively engaged in that with your kids. Um, and I think that's easier. Do you want to sit at home with the TV on marking for two hours every night? Or do you want to interact with the kids in your room? I think that talking to the kids is a lot more fun. And so I know for the elementary school that you've been working at, there really has been a shift away from, you know, giving a fourth grader A, B, C, you'll never succeed in life, F. Like, where has grading shifted in the time that you've been teaching and where do you see it going in the future? 
That's a great question. I mean, grading has definitely shifted. Like I've been teaching long enough to remember the previous curriculum, right? With like prescribed learning outcomes and sort of this checkbox system, which really lends itself well to these, this sort of idea of grades, which are highly conceptual as they are. What, what you might perceive or a listener might perceive an A to be, I might perceive entirely different. It's just some sort of abstract symbol that we think means the same thing. Ultimately, I do think we'll move away from that letter grade system as a, as a, as a school system as a whole. And how do you explain that to parents? They're like, I want to know. Well, you have a lot of parent nights is what you do. And you try your best to communicate a lot. I think there's a difference there to kind of wearing the VP hat is you want to try and provide as much information as clearly as possible and avoiding sort of that edge you speak. It's a shift for parents. And I think we have to just like we would with kids in our class, meet them where they are and acknowledge the change that's happening and provide the rationale for the change. And it's a, it's a, it's a, a long walk for some families and we just work with them. I could probably pull up some PDF parent handouts on my laptop if you want to get serious about this. I'd actually love that, and then I could put it on the show notes. Oh, for I, sure. Because I think that that is something that a lot of teachers worry about. I don't think teachers should be worrying about that. That's the administrative in administration's role is to communicate that with parents and allow teachers to teach with best practice. So, where are areas that you've had the most struggle? Uh, there's lots of things I've struggled with. I think that's sort of the role of reflection in teaching. I can't, <laughs> and there's a struggle like every week. You want to figure out how to do your best. Like you sort of think, okay, these, so this week I was teaching coming from mul- multiplication from a strategy-based perspective. So it's not so much memorizing the facts, but the strategies. And I had this whole like game lesson station thing set up for the kids. And we were going to work towards trying to figure out what strategies they were using. One was like doubles, another, you know, so on. And the kids had zero idea what I was talking about. And the photocopier jammed. And so I didn't have one section of what I needed. And it was just one of those things where I was like, yep, today is, this is a struggle. This lesson didn't go as I planned. So I think there's lots of those all the time. And that's just part of, part of working in a dynamic human system. And so what's the kind of message that you're giving yourself or the talk you're giving to yourself when that happens, because I know that you have been the person who have tried a lot of things, some things which haven't worked, but that's never stopped you from trying just as or more innovative or risk-taking things. So what's that self-talk that allows you to keep going? Ultimately, I just think what, like, what would I want, if this was my kids in my class, what would I want them to do? Try again. What do we want to teach kids? Resilience. And so I think that sort of idea of growth mindset didn't work, can't do it yet. Can I try a different angle? Can I reach out to somebody? Should I just maybe scrap this and try again next year because it's not going to work this year for whatever reason? Like being realistic about that. And tomorrow's a new day. Like they're, they're learners. We're all learners in that building. So I'm going to learn from it and move on. So I think if you're willing to just learn from it, whatever that is, maybe it's you're never going to touch it again. Maybe you're going to tweak it and try it again tomorrow and say to the kids modeling, well, that didn't go so well. Here's why. And this is what I thought about. Let's try it again. I don't know if we want the kids to learn, then we should be learning too. So if the kids mess up something, they can try again. Why can't we? For me, especially as a new teacher, all the administration like vice principal principal were so intimidating 
And I think it's really awesome that you're willing to share the ways in which you struggle and have struggled, because I always just assumed that, you know, you reached a point where now you are a master teacher and nothing goes wrong. And I learned pretty quickly that that does not exist. Totally. Master teacher means you've really honed your reflection skills. And when something goes wrong, you have more experience to be able to be like, oh, that's what it was. Or like, I should have given the kids more brain breaks or I, my sequence was off or I asked too much of them too quickly or I didn't ask enough and they were bored. I think that's what being a master teacher is, is you know what questions to ask yourself to reflect to make it better. And I think you also get better at adapting for different learners. To me, that's being a master teacher. It's not being like some mythical, perfect creature that never makes a mistake or has all the answers or somehow marks all the essays in one night. Like (laughs) I'd like to meet that person. I'd like some of their energy. (laughs) You have unlimited school funds. I'm going to get you a personal chef, even though I know that you do really good cooking that you freeze. Freezer cooking is the only way I can feed myself and my family. (laughs) (laughs) What does your class or school look like? Oh my goodness. I've never had the opportunity to have an unlimited budget, but ultimately it would be meaning having the freedom to get whatever you need to meet the needs of your learners and your staff. Yeah. I don't know exactly what that would look like, and I think it'd be different at every site you walked into because each place has a community and a culture and a network and that type of thing, but that would be my dream, being able to meet everybody where they are and get them what they need. Yeah. Wouldn't that be so cool? Like, oh, here's a document cam. Oh, you need that? Here, I've just flown in this astronaut to talk to your class. But then some kid would probably say, oh, we should have just FaceTimed because of the carbon emissions of flying. And then you'd be like, it is working. (laughs) Awesome. Well, thank you very much for sharing all of this with us. Oh, my pleasure. Um, So if people wanted to contact you to ask you questions or follow up, how would they do so? Sure. Uh, My Twitter is at Ms. Gordon Class. And I have a class website if you want to check out some stuff going on in my class. That's MsGordonClass.Weebly.com. And I'd be happy to chat with anybody. And I really appreciate this opportunity. It was really fun answering your questions. So there you have it. Jillian Gordon with an important mission of meeting learners and parents where they're at, accepting a little chaos in your classroom, and finding a best friend who is better than you at things you want to improve on. If you have the time, please rate, review, and or subscribe as that helps this podcast reach new listeners. This has been Less Than Possible, and I've been your host, Aviva Levins.